So again, September 12, 2010, lecture discussion number 14 on the book of Romans. Uh, for those who are following along, I check on them every now and then to see how many are following along, and it sometimes is pretty frightening. So uh, let's uh, always be aware of them and try to do what? That's right. Laugh at my jokes and pretend you're a really big crowd so that they'll send us, say, donuts. I've tried this before. There's a lot of them. One of them must live in Anchorage and can get us some donuts. Pizza. Kentucky Fried Chicken. You would hope. Hasn't happened. It happened once, but that was, I'm not sure if that was faked or not, just to make me excited about it. So I want the real thing. Okay, here we go. A lot of stuff on the plate today, uh, and we're going to need to sift and weed through it all. And, the, and I put a bunch of connective stuff out and dumped it all over those who came last week. And those, of course, are the most holy of all, and they were those who did not run off to various parts unknown in Alaska to fish and camp and hunt, which is a redundancy. And I'm aware that fish and camp and hunt is a redundancy, because 99% of all hunters really are what? That's right, campers in the rain. They never hunt, never see. They shoot at things, but it doesn't resemble anything that they would want to get a hunting permit for. That's one thing when I rode the railroad for all those years, uh, we had to be worried about the uh, disgruntled hunters because what would they do? Oh yeah, they shot at the trains, baby. They did. They're out there. They're thirty odd six for three days in the rain, and they're going to shoot something. And they're if it's moving, and if it looks like an animal, they're shooting it. And they did. They fired away at that thing. And there's nothing more disquieting to be sitting in one in front of those pane windows. And they designed them. To take care of everything up to a uh, up to a 338, I believe, figuring that no one is dumb enough to shoot a train with a Teflon bullet. But you know, you're sitting there. I don't know how I'm getting into this. No. More railroad stories, and you could see the outer uh, glass would uh, explode, and the bullet would stop on the inner glass. Happened a lot, and so they began to have to deal with that. Anyway. I know that 99% of the hunters are mostly campers, and similar is the percentage of those who fish. They're just merely campers. Hence my philosophy. Duh, buy the meat. Go to the store, buy the meat. And I have to admit, there's less exercise involved in that. I have to admit. It's also drier, warmer, and it's more, much more cheap, cheap. Far cheaper and far more successful. Anyway, along this line, since I'm doing this stuff, now would be a good time to insert something I'd like to call things I learned at the fair. And I've done this before. And I'm, I'm standing, this is absolutely true, uh, standing there waiting for John because John has wandered off to placate the people who you have to pay for parking because John's just went right on through saying, I'm John. I don't need to pay. So he's already, but, so he's going back with his little hat, so I wait for him. And he's about 150 feet away, so that's going to take a half hour. And there's this little girl and her mom, and the mom is explaining to the lady taking the tickets, you know, because it costs, what, $200 to get into the fair, right? Something like that. Okay, 10 20 I don't know. Lori pays. So anyway, she's waiting, she's paid, and she's explaining to the lady taking the tickets that her daughter is uh, underage. And so she says to the lady, my daughter is free, and which the girl found offended by that. And she said, no, mommy, I'm four. (laughs) 
So that's how it started. And I thought, now that's pretty cool. There's another little kid. They asked him, where do you live? And he looked at him because it was the Lumberjack show. We'll get to that in a minute. Where do you live? And the kid said, at home. <laughs> Made perfect sense to him. They were trying to divide him into Anchorage and Wasilla and Palmer. But uh, I also learned, number two, that the pumpkin, though impressive, at 1,100 pounds. And that was kind of impressive for a plastic pumpkin. Don't be fooled. It wasn't even painted well this year, but pretty impressive. But it was not as impressive as the 850-pound pig. Now that, that, boys and girls, is cool. When you realize that that pig would eat you without blinking. Little tiny fence. 900-some-odd almost-pound pig back there. I'm looking. He'd eat the fence. So. And I also learned that it's true, absolutely true. I didn't know this, and I have learned it now. It's absolutely true that you can grow kiwi fruit in Alaska. Kiwi fruit. It was in the fair. Did it get a ribbon? I don't think it got a ribbon. I wouldn't have given it a ribbon because it's also true that the kiwi that you grow in Alaska looks very much like small, green, hairy peanuts. Not very impressive. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have eaten it. I don't know. I might have tried it on the 900-pound pig or 850, whatever it was. And then the lumberjack show of 2010 was absolutely perfectly identical. I could have played a tape. It was perfectly identical to the Lumberjack show of 1990, 1991, 92, 1993, 94. You get the picture. It's absolutely the identical Lumberjack show. Not one word out of place. Not one new thing. So I learned that. I asked myself, could they go 20 years with this? And the answer is, yes, they can. They're not going to go. And finally, I need a drum roll for this because this was extraordinary. I could stop and make Eric come up. My favorite in the fair is the guesser. I love the guesser. Used to be a, a, a man that bathed maybe three months after he came to the fair. The guesser. If you don't know the premise of the guesser, you go by the guesser. And this must be his son, because the guesser was an older man and, like I said, uh, uh, did not look um, like hygiene was a priority to him. And he's standing there, and if you give him $5, he will try to guess how old you are. And if he's wrong, he gives you a prize that is worth 20 cents. And he's hoping that he's wrong 100 times a day because he made 500 bucks. But people used to line up in front of the guesser where there used to be a line. And this guy's got to be going, how many stupid people are there in the fair? You give me five dollars, I give you ten cents back, and I'm wrong. Oh, and you've got the glory of fooling the guesser again. Hey, try it again. Maybe you'll get another ten cent prize. And he's got hundreds of them. So he's my favorite. That's the premise. But this year, the new guesser, the young guesser... I'd say, when I say young, he's probably in his 40s, but uh, he did not even pretend I watch him. I always watch the guesser. He's a professional. I mean, I look at the guesser and say, this man knows how to get money out of people, and every pastor should stand right here. I'm kidding about that, but uh, most of them do. Anyway, I'm watching the guesser. I always watch the guesser. He's kind of my hero. And this year, the guesser does not, does not even pretend to care. He doesn't go, watch my stuff this year. 
hey, I'm going to wander off. Watch my prizes so they don't get stolen. He doesn't even doesn't even pretend now, doesn't. He just walks off, wanders off. He doesn't care or protect his prizes from shoplifters. Even the little kids, he's not worried about anybody stealing his prizes. He just wanders off, as I said, and he bought curly fries and got his face painted. Now, it's true. The guesser does know from past experience that very few fair patrons will steal his stuff. And it's kind of a barometer. How are we doing intellectually? And, and, and if somebody does steal his stuff, he will just have to once again fish them out of the nearest trash can because they're not going to hold this long. There's no way. I don't care. It's a $5 prize. You just take time next year. He'll be there. And look at his $5 prizes. And he's got to fish them out at worst and wipe off the burger grease or the strands of cotton candy. You know, the spit are not. Mostly are not. Look at the prizes. But for the first time, I watched him a half hour or better this time walking back and forth. I did not see one customer sucker for the guesser. Not one. And I thought, okay, there's hope for Palmer for all these years. Hope for America. He didn't make it. So that's something that I learned. That the guesser scam has run its course. Okay, David C. Stahl. Yeah, we're going to do a little bit of this. Charlotta. I mean, you were the ones that weren't here the other week, and I wanted to get to Nick. Um, here, could you take that to Nick? Don't look at his results. I was kidding about that. The ladder diver. Travis. Your mother had to... I'll make your wife get that. Oh, my goodness. The anonymous person who got a great score. You should have put your name on it that I hope is Eric. Uh, Jessica is not here. Oh, could be Bonnie. We'll give it to Bonnie. You deserve it. Uh, Misty is not here. Uh, Nick Petrella. Jonas is not here. Ken and Cindy. See, Travis, how Cindy makes Ken come and get it? Yeah. That is not an accident. (laughs) Okay. I want to return to the exam that most of you took, obviously, on August 22nd. That is for the people that listen by the Internet. If you don't have an exam and would like to follow along, you can have Jonas's or Nick's or Jessica's to do so. I don't think it will be necessary today. Uh, But I want to return to it. I can't spend the entire lecture on it, but I want to continue highlighting specific questions over the next few weeks because some of these questions are really quite complicated and kind of tricky. And so uh, I want to do that to ensure as many as possible possess the most possible implications of the ones of these questions that I put in intentionally to see how it would go. And today I want to bring back up question number 10. I did it a little bit last week. But it's going to take a while. It's probably the one that generated the most discussion. It certainly was the one that had the most variances and answers, which, uh, as as I go through it, you'll understand why that is. Uh, I would say it it probably split split 20, 25, 22, 21 percent. 
So it really did um, um, become um, quite, uh, quite diverse. So here's the question, and I'm going to cover it a little bit differently in the sense I'm going to read it a little bit differently. But the, the question began, question number 10 began this way. Referencing the Moses Zipporah incident in Exodus 4, 24 through 26. So once again, we're back to Exodus 24. I'm sorry, Exodus 4, 24 through 26. And this is the very, very famous um, extraordinary incident where the seizing of Moses occurs by Jesus Christ. This is a physical manifestation of God. All physical manifestations of God are the same thing. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, also the angel of the Lord, as he's called. Here he is seizing Moses and putting Moses under a death sentence. Moses is going to be killed here in Exodus 24, or 4, 24 through 26 on his way to Egypt. And it seems to make no sense. Why is this inserted here, Moses going on to Egypt? And Zipporah, as seen Moses under the threat of death, knows he's under the threat of death. And Zipporah circumcises the sons. And I'm going to say sons, by the way, not son, because of Jethro and Exodus 19 eventually. And she circumcises them and she screams, if you will. I think she screamed, you are a husband of blood to me because of the circumcision. So the question is, referencing the Moses support incident in Exodus 4, 24 through 26, the circumcision that Zipporah screams out in this context is representative of, is a symbol of the following. So which did you choose? Whoops. Did you choose A, death? Did you choose B, baptism, the doctrine of baptism? Did you choose C, salvation by grace alone? Did you choose D, free will? Or did you choose E, uh, free willing? Okay, those were your choices. And as I said, it's, it, was, it was not remarkable to me. It was actually fairly evenly split. I would say that... Uh, well, one did win, but by, by just a very small margin. And there were almost 40 tests, tests so it was uh, almost 10 apiece, maybe 11, 9 for those four. <coughs> um, baptism came in fourth. Now, fortunately, Free Willy received no votes, thankfully. But again, statistically quite close. So one more time, question number 10 is asking, in the context of Exodus 4, 24 through 26, within this context and this context of God coming and seizing Moses unto death, Zipporah having to circumcise the sons, yelling at him, he is a husband of blood because of the circumcision, in that context, in this dramatic theodicy, if you've not heard that word before, it's time to get familiar with it, or that phrase. It's amazing. Uh, um, I happened to say one time, I was at a 
pastor's meeting. I won't identify any of the pastors, but you know most of them, some of you. And they asked me, they went around the room, what did you preach on this week? Which is always the most dreaded thing, especially for me. And it went around the room after everyone talked about their different subjects, and then they came to me. Uh, Mr. Cronister, what did you preach on? And I said, well, I, I did the dramatic theodicy of Gethsemane. And it was really quiet. Time for the next guy. Finally, one guy said, I need to know what a dramatic theodicy is. And so I explained it to them, which is both good and sad simultaneously. So I want you to know what a dramatic theodicy is. This is when God does something in the Bible in a way to make it understandable to our finite minds. And he almost, if you will, the dramatic part is, is he acts it out. Okay? And so he puts, he, he, it's the same thing that happened when Abraham is talking to God, saying, if I can name a righteous man ten or whatever, give you a number, will you? You see, that makes no sense. God cannot change his mind. He's immutable. So the only way that that works is as a dramatic theodicy. The same thing in Gethsemane. Christ is God. He's the physical manifestation of God. He is the same will of God. So when he says he is God, when he says, not my will, but your will, that clearly is a dramatic theodicy. You see the same thing when Aaron runs in the midst of the plague and stops the plague. Again, a dramatic theodicy. Who runs into the midst of the or the midst of the plague of death is elevated in the mist and stops the plague of death? Who does that? That's Jesus Christ. Aaron is a symbol, a type of Christ. Again, a dramatic theodicy. So I have, if you wish, to put it, think of it this way, it's not totally accurate. I have God teaching something using an actual event to do so. So question number 10 is asking, in the context of the Exodus 4, 24 through 26 dramatic theodicy, Because this is a dramatic theodicy, a place in Scripture where God uses an actual literal event and people, and he interacts in a way to teach a divine doctrinal principle. In the context of that, uh, what the circumcision symbolize? What is being taught, by the way, in Exodus 4, 24 through 26? What is the point of it? First, you have to start there. And once you've got what is the overall truth, then you can go to the individual pieces. So first I have to understand what the overall truth is being done here. Now I can list the pieces. What are the pieces? Moses. Okay. Moses being seized to the point of death. He is under a death sentence. Okay. Hey, that's a piece. Who got him? God, right? God comes. It's YHVH. It's capital. It's capitalized. Whenever you see Lord, all four capital letters, yeah, that is the YHVH. Right? Who else is in there? Who else is in this event? Zipporah is. Okay. Or Zippy for short. Four. Who else is in the event? So, the sons that got circumcised. 
What else is in the event? The circumcision. Okay? So I have the overall truth that's being taught here, and then I have these pieces. That's true. I could put in Egypt, because it is on the way to Egypt. Now, do you think there was any... You have to understand that God is outside of time, right? And he has sent Moses. Do you expect that Moses and Zipporah would not solve this and get through it? Contemplate whether or not you're doctrinally sound when you answer that. Because you're up against God's omniscience. Okay, let me put it another way. What aspect of the Godhood is the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, portraying as he meets Moses and seeks to kill him? Okay? What aspect of the Godhead? What's an aspect of the Godhead? Justice. What's another aspect of the Godhead? Mercy. Okay? What's another aspect of the Godhead? The solution between justice and mercy. So which one is Jesus Christ, the physical manifestation of the Godhood? Which one is he representing here? Is he representing the love mercy of God? So your point would be the love mercy of God is seeking to put Moses to death. Does that sound like love and mercy to you? Maybe it is. Could be for some of us. See Corinthians. Or is it the judgment of God? The justice, the holiness of God? Or is it the solution between the collision of the justice and holiness and the love and mercy? Because love and mercy says what? That none should perish. Justice and holiness says what? All should perish. How can I solve that? Well, there is a solution. The solution is Christ, but that's another time. Another place, see your Matthew 4 discussion if you haven't heard it, but see your Genesis 15, see your Gethsemane. Matthew 26. Which one of those do you have Christ in the position of? When he, Zipporah obviously knows why God has come, doesn't she? And she knows what aspect has come, what it is, and what the solution is. What is the solution? Moses is under a sentence of death. What's the solution? Circumcision. Circumcision does what? Solves the problem, right? Can she solve the problem any other way? Moses is under the penalty of death. God has come to kill Moses, seize him and kill him. Circumcision is the solution. Then, who then does Moses represent besides himself? Consider that. Who does Zipporah symbolize besides herself? That actually was on the test. And that is because, again, of Corinthians, the stumbling block that is Christ crucified. And on a deeper plane, besides herself, on a deeper plane, who does Zipporah symbolize? What then does the circumcision typify? And then why is Moses called the husband of blood? And that clearly, I should be obvious to you, that the husband of blood in all of Scripture is Christ himself. Why is Moses called Christ? Why would God seize God and put God to death? Does God ever put God to death? 
Yeah. Who else can put God to death? How do you kill God? Only God can give up his life. That's why he's so careful to say that in Scripture. No one can take it from me. I must give it up. Yes, sir. Typologically, Genesis 3, federal headship. No, you're not, because that would put you in the free will position. We'll get to that in just a second. Okay? So, but first, let's go back to the sign of circumcision. It is the sign, without dispute, of the Abrahamic covenant of blessing and promise and grace. Without dispute, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of blessing and promise and grace. It is the sign of the covenant of blessing and promise and grace. So, is the sign, if circumcision equals death, now be very slow to jump for answers here. Let me warn you. If circumcision, that's why I'm repeating it, it is the sign of blessing and promise and grace, is the sign of the covenant of blessing and promise and grace, death. <laughs> is the sign, see, then you would be on the side that says death is what, symbol, what circumcision symbolizes. Is the sign of... The Abrahamic covenant, is it baptism? What is baptism, by the way? Yeah, it's full of mercy. John the Immerser, by the way. Not John the Sprinkler, that's another story. But John the Immerser, that's what it means. It's his name. Okay? What does it mean to immerse somebody into the Jordan Sea? Jordan, Jordan means judgment and death descending from a city, Joshua 3. What city is the origin of the Jordan, the river of judgment and death, descending into judgment and death? What city is the genesis or the origin of the Jordan River? And the answer is Adam, the city of Adam, Joshua 3. So again, I hope you could see the symbolism there. I have death and judgment going into the Dead Sea where nothing comes out of it except what? The only way you get out of the Dead Sea is by, by evaporation, by heat, by fire, if you will. So I have this wonderful picture of this river of judgment and death descending. So what is the Jordan River a symbol of? Lost mankind. I hope you can see that. You are immersed into death and judgment, and then you come out. So if you wanted to say baptism, you're also saying what? Death. But... Here, you've made it a little bit more specific. You've said death and judgment and resurrection. So, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant death, judgment, and resurrection? Or, is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of promise and grace... I'm sorry... What did I say on the real test? I say salvation by grace alone. Is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, is it salvation by grace alone, or is it free will? Free will takes you to federal headship. So, mm-hmm. 
Genesis 15, Genesis 12, Genesis 17. It's in all three places. Genesis 17, circumcision, is identified as its symbol. Yes. Of course you do. Uh, the only answer that could be correct is death. And the reason for that is that Moses, in, the, in, your, in your analogy here, is in a state of rebellion. He is not, at that point, ready to be a leader. He must be corrected. That is why you have to ask, who does Moses represent? Why is he being seen? That's correct. Who would you have? Would you have Moses generally as all of mankind in rebellion, or do you have a specific person? Uh, I think of him specifically because he is going to be representative for Israel. Yes, he is, and that makes him a, a symbol of a type of... In rebellion, a representative agent for the nation of Israel would make him move. Okay, I'm going to make the, I'm going to take you a little further. I'm going to say that Moses is a type of, but is not, but is a type of a federal head. Okay, so he would not be Christ because he's in rebellion. So who's the only other federal head in rebellion that he could be a type of? Huh? Oh, yes, you could make him a type of Satan. I didn't. That never occurred to me. But uh, obviously, he's a human being. But you're right. He could be a type of Satan. But he's a human being, and it would put him into the free will discussion. You will begin to see that three of these all kind of line up, and one doesn't. Okay. I asked number six for destination because it's critical to ask, where are they going? Yes. They are. He's absolutely correct. Egypt typifies the land of of uh, absolute sinlessness, the land of, of disobedience, the land of unbelief, the world. So circumcision is the solution to keeping him out of rebellion. So is death the solution to keeping you out of rebellion? Yes, it is. Read your New Testament. Okay, so let me let me keep going because I have to. That clock cannot possibly be right. Okay, let me give you my one word answer. Okay, okay. Well, well, we'll get there. And by the way, am I going to finish question ten today? No, of course not. Okay, if it is death, death must be defined. Okay, so we got to define it. Is it? You got two kinds of death, don't you? What's the first kind of death? Physical, temporal, if you will, temporary death. Physical, temporal death. Or spiritual, eternal death. Is it mankind's death? Is it Satan's death, which would be a spiritual, eternal death? Or is it Christ's death? Which death is it? Because I clearly have Moses under a threat of death. Which death is he under a threat of? Physical death. Or spiritual death? Or both? You want to go both? What is the solution to death? Zipporah thought it was circumcision. Therefore, what does circumcision typify? Is it the death... <laughs> i got to do this carefully now. What is the difference between Christ's death and mankind's death? Because there's a difference. Christ's death is clearly what? Temporal. 
or let me put it this way. What is the difference between the death of the first federal head? What is the death between or what is the difference between the death of the first federal head, who is Adam, and the death of the last federal head? What is the difference between Adam's death and Christ's death, the first Adam and the last Adam? Perhaps you can see why some will argue that circumcision represents free will, because they have gone exactly where uh, Bill has said. They have seen this representative rebellion here that needs a solution, that needs what? Needs a covering of blood. And they see Genesis 3, which is where Mike was. The whole point of Genesis 3 is right here. So they will say to you, circumcision is the sign of free will. So you're headed towards free will. The death of Adam is the result ultimately of a free will decision to choose to sin. Does that make sense? Adam's death is the result ultimately of a free will decision to choose to sin. Everyone will say, all scholars will say that Adam had has free will. A high percentage of scholars will say you don't. How many people, here's a really quick test. How many people in this place have ever been parents? How many of you believe your kid at age three had no free will? How many of you believe you have no free will that when you get to heaven, God will say, it's not really your fault for everything that you chose to do. It was my fault. I'm the one that made you do it. How many think that dog's going to hunt? You know instinctively that is foolishness and will end in a gnashing and wailing of teeth for you. So why is it that they say man does not have free will after Adam? couple of things. They don't notice that second tree. And two, they haven't solved, they haven't looked at Matthew 4, Genesis 15. But we'll get to that some other day. They're called hyper-Calvinists, by the way, and they put God as the author of and the source of evil. Okay, Jesus Christ's death also involves free will. Does God have free will? Yeah, he does. God chooses, or chooses, chose, to sacrifice himself as a substitute for sin. The first Adam, last Adam. It's quite complex, this comparison contrast of the first Adam and the last Adam. Anywho, again, when you put the atoms together, free will will then be uh, an issue. And therefore, that's why so many think that circumcision represents the sign of the Abrahamic covenant to um, uh, covenant of blessing and promise and grace is free will, they will say. And the solution, Zipporah's solution, was uh, free will, a free will solution. Or Zipporah's solution is to kill something and substitute it. Or Zipporah's solution is to take something that is acceptable as a sacrifice and use that. So what is it? Is death the solution to death? Again, you have to, I'm going to recap here. You have to define these things. Is free will the solution to save Moses from death? You have to define death. And this is death imposed by God. Is free will the sign of the Abrahamic covenant of blessing? Is death the solution to death? Is death the solution to death? Good, it is, isn't it? Whose death is the solution to death? 
God's death is the solution to death, isn't it? Okay? So again, you have to define who de- what death is. In the context, whose death are we talking about? Does Moses represent Christ here, captured by God, being put to death? Does he? Or does he represent a federal head who cannot be allowed, as Bill said so well, cannot be allowed to go and lead a people into death who are already in death? Lead a people out of death. Okay? Again, is free will the solution to death? Think it through. Who's free will? Anyway, more on that next week. That's where we stop. Yes, you can. Passover is... Hmm? Yes, Passover is coming. Passover is what, primarily? What does Passover represent? Yeah, Passover is, is not just the death of Christ. It is the application of the receiving of the blood of Christ as a covering. Okay. So now your my duct tape is sticking. My Bible. Uh-oh. I thought I had a good solution. Apparently. Oh, saved it. My solution was to duct tape my Bible back together. Now, some of you will wonder, why don't I just what? Go get another one. I can't. Why can't I? Because I have argued with this guy for years. Not, not the scripture, the commentator. And I get it in large print. And he's the only one that makes a large print New King James. So I'm kind of stuck with him with a commentary. Because I like the cute little maps. I really do. And I don't want to... I don't want to lose it because I'd have to remember my previous arguments. Every now and then I get in an argument with uh, one of these guys and, and, or women, and they're wonderful, and I value very much everything they say, even though most of the time they're wrong. Okay, I'm kidding about that. A lot of times they disagree with me, which is, means they're wrong. No. Anyway, the point is, is I can't get rid of it, so I've tried duct tape. Here we go. Last week, Joshua 9, where we left off with our heroes. Who's our heroes in this story? Our heroes have gone along. We've got, we followed our heroes from where? We started out in Genesis 34, where they were all what? Our heroes were not really good guys, and they were all massacred. Okay? So we got the descendants of our heroes, and now we're at Joshua 9, where our heroes did what? Where our heroes, the Gibeonites, concocted this seemingly ridiculous uh, scam ruse to avoid being massacred by the Israelites. And it looks on its face as absolutely ridiculous. Who would ever fall for the moldy bread and the bad sandals and the torn wineskins? Hey, guys, we don't live here. We're from far, far away. Please don't kill us. Sign here. And we've got to have a covenant. We ain't taking your word for it this time, baby. It didn't work out so good. We want it in writing this time. We want a, a covenant, and that means i got dead animals cut in half, and we're walking through this thing, and by golly, we're having a covenant. And it's not, you know, if we lived here, Deuteronomy 7, we'd all get wiped out, but we don't. We live over here, Deuteronomy 21. We came from a long way away. Yeah, look at our donkey. He looks old. Here's a piece of moldy bread. This is going to work, right? It does work. 
So eventually we have to get back to how in the world that could work. So this, again, seemingly ridiculous scam to avoid being massacred. And that is Act 2, as I said. Act 1, again, I'm putting it in that kind of symbolism. It's not really accurate, but it might help you. Act 1 was the giant Dinah incident where the, uh, the Hivites, um, the Gibeonites, were massacred under another ruse, circumcision. And that, of course, made them stink. They had a stench on them. So last week we read about half of Act 2, so we should complete the rest. So here we go, uh, chapter 10 of Joshua. So follow along in your textbook, because this becomes pretty uh, important to understanding Joshua 9. If you have a problem in Joshua 9, then you should read Joshua 10. If you can't figure out Joshua 9 and Joshua 10, what should you do next? And go back to Joshua 34. If you can't figure out Joshua, I'm sorry, Genesis 34. If you can't figure out Genesis 34, Joshua 9, Joshua 10, where do you go? Second Samuel 21. You can't figure it out after you've done all of that. Where do you go next? You go to the New Testament, where you will find a New Testament complement of this story. What is Joshua 10? Somebody yelled it out to me, which is why we have to study astronomy. Remember, we talk about Romans. What is Joshua 10? I'll help you. It's big. Yes, the sun stands still. Who said that? The framing crew. How about that? We ever talked about this on the framing crew? We talked about other things. Never this. The sun stands still. What's that mean? So you got two choices right off the bat. Did he stop the sun from coming up or did he stop the sun from coming down? Which one does the cartoon movie say? He stopped the sun from coming down. So they could have what? Daylight. So they could kill more people. Well, I don't think that that's right. I think it is obvious that he stopped the sun from coming up. Now, if God stops the sun from coming up, what's that required? Scientifically. What does he have to do? I hate to take you back to astronomy, but the, the earth is rotating on its axis. It's also traveling through an orbit, right? And then the galaxy is doing what? It is traveling through, too. And what are the other... How many other galaxies are there? Billions and billions. Uncountable. Why does he make so much stuff? Uncountable. And occasionally they collide with each other. We know that. So he's got a galaxy. And what's he got to do in the galaxy to... He got to pretty well shut the galaxy down, doesn't he? How many other galaxies he got to shut down to do that? Okay, let's move on. Now it came to pass, verse 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, king of Jerusalem, is the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and its king so he, so he had done to Ai and its king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and had a covenant a signed piece of paper that you can't kill me thing they had it we're free ha sorry about you and they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. Very important to know that. Gibeon was an incredibly powerful city. 
like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty, all its men were mighty. This was a terrific fighting force in Gibeon. And they choose to ask Sue for peace because they knew they were going to be massacred. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lashish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon. In other words, they're not going to attack Israel. They're going to attack Gibeon. How come? Yes, they cannot allow. It's the old thing. It's very common in war, by the way. Those of you who study war, you have a choice generally. I, I've been studying just for fun uh, Sam Houston against uh, Santa Ana. Santa Ana massacred 183 men at the Alamo, and of course he waited. He had some survivors, and he executed them. One of them being the Congressman Crockett. So Crockett survived the Alamo uh, initially and was executed by. Santa Anna, and it's a favorite, a famous story about what Crockett said to him. Crockett uh, is uh, reputed to have asked Santa Anna to surrender, and if he would, because he's tied up and about to be executed, if he would surrender Santa Anna, then Crockett would let him live. That's uh, a famous story. But not only did he slaughter every survivor, and by the way, that is not was not done back then. He went on to Goliad, where he also captured 450 men, lined them all up, and executed them as well. So Sam Houston only had about 800, 900 men, maybe 1,200 tops. I don't have my history perfect. Santa Ana had a little bit more than that. And there's this field. And, and uh, the first thing that Houston did was he burned the bridges so nobody could escape. There was no escape. So your choice is to attack and fight or be executed by Santa Ana. You can't surrender. Everybody knew it. So that was the charge. You always hear, remember the Alamo as they charged. But they also said, remember the Goliad or the one where 450 men were gunned down in cold blood after they had surrendered. So there was no chance to surrender. That's what's going on here. If you don't fight with us, we will execute you. By the way, Sam Houston attacked um, and he caught them slightly by surprise. And that that war, the war or the battle that uh, gave Texas its sovereignty um, lasted, I think, less than 20 minutes, and only eight Texans died. Hundreds of Mexican regular army did. It's an incredible story. And Santa Ana, of course, lived and went on to invent what? Chicklets gum. <laughs> really? Paul Harvey, you got to be kidding, right? Yeah. He was trying to fund his next revolution. Uh, it's a fascinating thing, and I just couldn't help but tell you. I don't know why. But that's what's going on here in Gibeon, right? Gibeon is being threatened because they surrender. You don't surrender, you get a bullet in the back. You either attack or we shoot you. It's that the way it's going because we can't let anybody else run off. We've got to kill everybody that won't fight. That's what's going on. Okay? That's what's happening. Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua Made peace with Joshua. Whenever you see Joshua in the Bible, what should you see? You should see Yeshua, right? Yeshua is who? Because they have made peace with Jesus. It actually means salvation. It means they have made peace with God and have salvation. 
So we have to attain. Now, there's your classic application. As soon as you're saved, as soon as you have made peace with God and you are saved, what's going to happen to you? They come and get you, baby. They're going to attack. Now you have conflict, okay? So, therefore, the five kings. Oh, man, I got five kings. Wow, that's really important. Of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Sharmut. The king of Lashish and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and the camp before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon said, sent to Joshua, Hey, we got a piece of paper, Josh, baby, come and save us. So I have an encampment. I have a siege going on. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him. Where in the Bible does Christ come with all the people to fight? Somebody who is surrounded. Where? Yeah, that's revelation, that's tribulational, that is Israel, right? And Basra. You might call it Petra, but you'd be better off calling it Basra. So Joshua ascended, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. (coughs) Not a man of them shall stand before you. What's going to happen to every single man then? They're all dead. Going to kill them all. Where does God kill them all? Revelation 19, right? For I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machadah. Now it says, who chased them? Who routed them? God is after them. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Haran that the Lord cast down large rocks. It says hailstones, but mostly that means rocks. God likes rocks. Where does he use rocks to kill things? Think Goliath. He likes rocks and he's really good with them. He hits things really well. There's scenes in Joshua where they're intermersed, where the Israelites are fighting with the Philistine or whomever, and the, the, the enemy is hit with a rock. And the Israelite is not. Just imagine huge armies intermingled, and the rocks are hitting the enemy, never the Israelite. He is a very good shot. And he likes rocks. He doesn't miss. And the Lord cast down large rocks from heaven on them. Who is the rock from heaven? Uh, on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of the Lord, Sun, stand still over Gibeon. Again, does he want it to stay, to not come up? Because if it comes up, what happens? It's hot. Does he need to see? Does God know where they are? Does he hit them with rocks in the dark? Oh, yeah. God doesn't need the light. He is the light. 
So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. What does that require astrophysically till the people had revenge upon their enemies? Is this not written in the book of Jasser? You should get a book of Jasser for no other reason than to study Esau and Nimrod and Jacob and what that real what the real story behind that porridge of soup is, because Nimrod had just been killed by Esau and they were out to get Esau. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven now. The sun stood still in the midst of heaven. How big is that? The second heaven. We have a good idea now. And did not hasten to go down, it says in my Bible. Except the down is why. It's in italics. What's that mean? Not in the text. And the sun did not hasten to go for about a whole day, and there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of the man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all of Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Okay, I'm going to keep reading because I have to. Uh, in order, okay, I'll stop here. I just want you to notice as we go on, though, that uh, he, uh, the five kings, go hide in a cave, and what he does is he. They're hiding in the cave. And Joshua tells the Israelites, we're going to leave them there. And what are we going to do? By the way, how long did it take him to march from Gilgal to Gibeon? That's another thing. But anyway, we're going to leave them in this cave. What are we going to do to keep them there? We're going to roll a large stone and set guards. And everybody in the congregation goes, well, of course that's what you're going to do. You're going to roll a large stone and you're going to set guards. That's really important. Where's the New Testament compliment? Okay. So, now it's important to keep at the forefront that Joshua 9 and Joshua 10 are two halves to a whole. I've got two pieces and they make a whole. So keep it straight, if you will. Genesis 34 is Act 1. Joshua 9 and 10 are Act 2. Second Samuel 21 is Act 3. Or 1 is the first part. There's two halves of the second part, and then there's the last part. And by the way, he hung those five kings, cut them down. They were on trees after they'd been in a cave with a big rock. Then he put them back in the cave and put rocks in front of the cave again, and the rocks are still there. It says Now, the way to put these things together is always remember what about the Old Testament? Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. So find him on every page of the Old Testament and teach yourself to find him. Did you find him yet in this story? Hopefully you saw that I got a cave and I'm rolling rocks in front of it and I got large stones. Okay, find Christ. Once you've accomplished that, then note the continuing elements and the disparate elements. What I mean by that is look at what happened in Genesis 34 and then look at what's happening in Joshua 9 and 10. And what is the same? What's repeated? And then what's unique? What's different? Or in other words, those added items that are in each part and those items that are unique. And this, the Gibeonite saga, some elements are in two parts and not in the third. So it gets a little bit more complicated. Also try to be aware of those things that are within the crucifixion week of Christ. So every time you see something and you go, wow, that element is also in the crucifixion week of Christ. Do What did Christ enter Jerusalem on? What did he ride? Do I have donkeys anywhere in this story? I do. Find the donkeys. 
by the way, what is what are what are donkeys generally a symbol of? <laughs> it, it, you know, it's fascinating to see that sometimes. But he said Democrat. For those of you who can hear, but donkeys are really in Scripture symbols for humanity. He's calling us essentially dumb, stubborn donkeys. Or jack blanks, if you will. Why would he do that? Why would he call you a dumb, stupid donkey? Because we are dumb, stupid donkeys. Okay. Try to be aware of those things that are within the crucifixion week of Christ. It's always important piece. So let's try it. Okay. Let's just try this and we'll call it good. I have four more pages. Why didn't we get to the rest of it where all the exciting stuff is? Because it's Bill's fault. That's right. Absolutely. So he goes last in the buffet. No, it's not. It's very important to do what Bill does. Never think it isn't. Okay, let's try it. Can anyone name the central theme that connects or is present in both Genesis 34, which is Act 1 of the Gibeonite Saga, and Joshua 9, which is Act 1 of Act 2 of the Gibeonite Saga? Does that make sense? Part 1 of Act 2. Anyone name, what is the central theme of the Dinah incident? Circumcision. Circumcision used to murder people as a what? As a deception. So deception using circumcision. What's the obvious question now about Joshua 9? Do I have circum- do I have deception in Joshua 9? See, in Joshua 34, I'm sorry, Genesis 34, I had deception, then death, didn't I? Here I have deception, then salvation. Deception being the key, right? Notice the first time, Genesis 34, the Gibeonites took the word of the Jews. They ain't doing it this time. This time it's got to be in writing. This time it's an oath. It's a covenant. God's name has to be invoked. And as I said, it's probably a Genesis 15 style agreement. In any event, Yeshua delivered the Gibeonites out of the hands of the children of Israel so they did not kill them, Joshua 9.26. Okay? How long did they travel to get to um, get to Israel, the Gibeonites? Three days. They made the covenant at the end of three days. How long did they wait before they killed the Gibeonites in Genesis 34? Three days. What's three days to you? If I say three days to you, three days, three nights, you yell back at me. Sign of Jonah, right? You'll find Christ on every page. We'll pick up there next week and we'll finish it. Okay. Let's rise and be dismissed if we can. Let me look, make sure I haven't missed anything.